Blog Talk Radio. everything you want it to be? Are you living a fulfilled, passionate life empowered with choices that ignite you to the next level? Good love makes your whole life better. So join America's good love doctor, Dr. Brenda Wade, on a journey to your healthiest life yet. A regular on Dr. Oz and Dr. Drew, she's appeared on Oprah, Good Morning America, and is featured in countless publications from USA Today to Essence Magazine. The creator of life-changing Get Unstuck Now, Love, Money, and Save a Seminars, she's counseled millions, but today she's here just for you with the hottest topics, guests, and trends. This is Good Love with Dr. Brenda Wade. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Good Love, and I'm your good love doctor, Dr. Brenda Wade, and it's an honor to be with you every week here on Good Love Radio because our Good Love community around the world is growing. One of the most exciting things for me is when we get your email messages and Facebook messages or you tweet us and say that you've gotten something of value from the radio show and we actually got an email from a lady in Europe who said that she and her husband listened to Good Love Radio and that it has made a difference for them in all the many, many ways because you know we cover a broad range of topics related to love, but that all of it for her, this was her word, has added up to transformation of their ideas about love, which has generated new possibilities for them so thank you thank you so much and do continue to send those facebook messages send your questions some of you have sent some very gnarly questions we'll be picking some of those up and reading them and answering them as part of the show but today we have a really special show because we're entering the holiday period and of course With the Thanksgiving holidays coming, uh, the Giants winning the World Series, let me just get that in, San Francisco Giants World Champions, being a native San Franciscan and the daughter of a diehard Giants fan. My father, wherever he is, I'm sure there is a heaven for Giants fans. He's in it, and he is rejoicing that his boys, as he always called the Giants, won the World Series again. So let me just get that out. Okay, I got that out, and we move on. Uh, And couples who go to ball games, I'm sure, are much happier. So the important thing about the holidays is that most of you know, as much as we think it's a time of celebration, there are more couples breaking up during the holidays than any other time of the year. It is 
also the time when there are a higher number of family conflicts that erupt and people are more likely to get into an old-fashioned family feud. So why is that? What's missing from our thinking, our planning, our awareness about these holidays? Because you all know the word comes from holy day, and it sounds like holy hell as opposed to any other kind of holiness in some families. In fact, I had a client, I'll never forget this, tell me that he and his brother got in a fist fight under their mother's Thanksgiving table on Thanksgiving Day. Now, these gentlemen were in their 60s, and their mother was 90 years old. And they are in a fist fight because mother passed the stuffing or something to one brother first, and the other one erupted, you've always chosen him over me, and boom, there we have it. So our guest today has something very, very important to share with us because she is a conflict resolution coach. It's Lisa Gibson, who's going to talk about how to forgive old family grudges before you sit down to that holy or holy hell dinner. You have a choice, everybody. She's written an unforgettable and unbelievable book based on her own story, and you don't want to miss Learning about forgiveness, that's what we're here for. You all know that good love is essential to your greatness, and partly it's because in order to have good love, you need to know how to operate forgiveness in your life for yourself and for others. Can't have love without forgiveness, everybody. We also here at Good Love Radio focus on how to identify those old negative love patterns that may be blocking you from true intimacy and the good love you want. And, of course, we focus on how to break the chains of what happened back then so you can be free to experience the love that's available to you right now. And one of the chain-breaking tools is forgiveness. So this holiday... As you prepare or brace, as the case may be, for another family get-together where those old disputes and issues might erupt, how about adopting a different attitude? Let me tell you about Lisa Gibson. Lisa could be considered a forgiveness expert because she lost her brother in the 1988 bombing of Pan Am Flight 103 over Scotland And she made headlines when she met and forgave Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi, the man responsible for her brother's death. She's been featured on CNN, MSNBC, NBC, ABC, CBS, countless other networks, bringing the message of forgiveness to the world. She's been traveling to war-torn nations that engage in terrorism to train leaders in how to prevent and resolve conflicts. She's written Life and Death, A Journey from Terrorism to Triumph, and she's written Releasing the Chains, Timeless Wisdom on How to Forgive Anyone for Anything. You can find her at her website. I'm going to give it to you now because you're going to want her in your resource file, www.conflictcoach.biz. 
All right, everyone, please welcome to Good Love Radio, Lisa Gibson. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure, Lisa. And let me say that what you're doing in the world is so meaningful and so important. And I want you to do a little affirmation with me, if you don't mind, because I think it'll help everyone get in tune. We have our very own mantra here at Good Love Radio, and it goes like this, if you'll say it with me, everybody, with Lisa and I. I am worthy. Breathe it in, everyone. And I am worthy. Yeah. And I am so lovable. I am worthy and I am deserving and I am so lovable. Because in order to live that affirmation, learning to forgive is a part of making that affirmation a reality. Because most of us lack self-love because we lack self-forgiveness. So Lisa, so great to have you talk to us about your journey Absolutely. I mean, it's really great to be here, and I've I've heard a lot about you and the work that you do, so thank you for what you do, and thank you for the opportunity just to share a little bit about my story, and as you mentioned, I kind of got involved in doing this whole conflict resolution thing in, in, in sort of the non-typical way. I lost a loved one in the 1988 terrorist bombing of Pan Am 103, and it kind of catapulted me on this 25-year journey of trying to figure out how to forgive, but then ultimately to focus on reconciliation, which took me to places all over the world teaching conflict resolution. And so it's it's sort of like my own story started the path, and then from there it just turned into a really a global mission to help other people realize that there's so much more power in forgiveness than in holding on to offense or wanting revenge than people really realize. So when you say there's more power in forgiveness, what happened for you personally when your brother was killed? Did you go into revenge or resentment, anger? What happened for you? Yeah, I mean, I was 18 years old when it happened, so I was kind of at that formidable stage in my life where I didn't have the necessarily the skills to really deal with the magnitude of it. So for me, I just had to, I had to seek out. Uh, my religious background as a Christian, what it had to say. And that was kind of my foundation. So I went to that place and, and, and read what I believed that I was supposed to do. And that was to forgive, but it was ultimately just an intellectual decision in the beginning. I said, oh, I must forgive. And then from there just started to walk that process out because really absent any real relationship or, or even knowledge of the person who had wronged my, my brother and my family, I needed to figure out how to really, do that, and that's what ultimately took me to meeting with Omar Gaddafi and even writing a letter of forgiveness so the guy was convicted. Is I wanted to, it to be beyond just an intellectual thing. I wanted it to be something concrete. Now, how did you get to the point where you could say this is more than intellectual? Because most of us like the idea of forgiveness. Most of us like it. But I have found in my many years, especially of working with couples, that I often have sitting in front of me or in one of my seminars people who say that they love one another, but then in the next breath, literally, I've heard people say, but I will never forgive you for the time that you XXX. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. For me, I think part of it was needing to 
really humble myself to recognize my own fallenness. And maybe I'd never murdered anybody or done anything really horrific like that. But what it required was a decision on my part to, to look inside and say, you know, is it possible for me to do something like this? Or what kind of things have I done to people that I would want me, them to forgive me for? And so it was really a, um, a decision to look at that person through the eyes of how they would want to be treated and giving people the benefit of the doubt because often people wrong you when they don't necessarily know that they did or because of their own brokenness. And so recognizing my own brokenness was the first step to helping me really authentically reach out in forgiveness to people that don't deserve it. And it is something that you have to understand is really at the heart of it. Sometimes you choose to forgive even when people don't deserve it. And it's something that was for myself personally, but ultimately because I realized if I didn't let go, if I didn't forgive, I would, in my heart, be harboring revenge, and I didn't want that to destroy me from the inside out. And so when I understood that, even at that young age, and then I started to kind of walk it out step by step, making a daily decision to forgive, then the feelings began to come. You know, what you just said is very important, because this idea that somebody has to deserve it, that... Uh, what they did is unforgivable. And that is an important distinction, that you're saying, no, they don't deserve it. And are you also saying the act is unforgivable, but the person is? Is that part of what you're saying? Absolutely. I think in, uh, <clears throat> I guess I've, I've developed a little bit of a keen awareness of humanity. I mean, even within a meeting with someone like Muammar Gaddafi, one of the things that was really um, very clear to me in that moment was it's almost like I I got a glimpse into who maybe he had been created to be and how far he'd gone from that. In other words, it was almost like a kind of a a sixth sense in that moment of having a conversation with, with him and saying, I choose to forgive. I choose to take the moral high ground, even though you don't deserve it. And it was almost like a shaming thing for me to, to reach out in that path, in that path. But, but I almost got a sense of, you know, how far he'd maybe gone from where he was originally designed to be and how I think any of us in the right circumstances or the wrong circumstances possibly could end up, you know, on a similar path. And we all have choices and we all have, you know, issues from our family backgrounds and all things that contribute to who we are as a person. And the only thing I have a control over in this day and now is a decision of how I choose to respond in the midst of it. Hmm. Wow, deep stuff, Lisa. So one of the things that you're saying is that you also got to a place of looking through the eyes, as you put it, at your own brokenness. Mm -hmm. So you could relate from this very human, you know, sometimes it's called, uh, I've heard this called walking in the other person's moccasins. You know, what's it like to just be human and then to say, you know, I'm human too and step into the other person's shoes. So when you say I walked it out and at age 18 you started walking it out and looking at your own brokenness first and then deciding even if the person doesn't deserve it, I'm taking the moral high ground. What are the steps to walking it out? What did you do after you started feeling the feelings? What did you feel? I mean, for me, I think it, it started out with a uh, desire to tr- to try to find a way to 
sort of overcome evil with good. So maybe I couldn't bring my loved one back, but maybe I could find a way to turn that bad thing into something good by helping other people who were still suffering. And so it was a very cathartic thing as I began that process because at the time we didn't even know who was responsible. It took many years for resolution of this case. And so I really didn't even know who to direct my anger at. So it was almost like channeling that into something more positive and proactive. And it was in the midst of that. It took me on a a personal reconciliation trip to Libya because I just wanted to go there and, and meet the people because I realized that my tendency is a human was to sort of demonize this whole people group because of something that had happened to me. And I was beginning to see, you know, all Libyans as terrorists or whatever. And so I wanted to go and, and just meet them. And it was on that trip that I kind of been, became envisioned to what their lives were like and, and what they were still suffering from. And I thought, well, maybe I can do something to help them. Maybe that will make my brother's death not be in vain is to help other people who are still suffering. And that took me um, to starting a nonprofit which I ended up working with uh, Omar Gaddafi's son, who you know, is now on trial for <laughs> crimes against his own people. But it was a bridge. It was a bridge to reconciliation. And I was able to then take this personal story of my own and use it to help other people who were still now, suffering. Now, what, what were the nonprofit's initiatives? What kinds of things were you doing? Yeah, we did humanitarian education projects for organizations called the Peace and Prosperity Alliance. And we basically did everything from bringing leaders in to do uh, training, to doing what we call people-to-people diplomacy, which is basically bringing develop leaders from the developed world and the developing world to help them develop. And we've done a variety of other things since then, including leadership development and conflict resolution. So you were training people on the ground to be part of the process and the dialogue of leadership? Yeah, so it basically started out as just my own story that, eventually gave me a platform to to speak to leaders not only before Gaddafi's you know rule ended but during the revolution and even after I've been back to Benghazi multiple times teaching leaders there on how to resolve conflicts more effectively and it's been pretty powerful I just got a message from a kid today on Facebook who was in one of my classes in Benghazi and this is like two months after they assassinated our ambassador he was like, it was so good for you to come. I was in your class. I just want you to know how much of a difference that made in my life. And that's just one small thing that I've been able to be a part of. That is huge. And what are the impacts that you've seen from people embracing the idea of forgiveness? Not just the idea, but as you said, the feelings that go with it. It's it's the first thing is that people giving themselves permission to forgive, realizing that I think it is a stronger thing than people often think it's weak to forgive. But when you recognize that there's strength in that, um, it's incredibly empowering. And teaching people the value of talking through conflict. I mean, as a, a therapist, you know this very clearly how important it is to talk through things with people to resolve conflict effectively. In in many cultures, that's not really that comfortable. And in the Middle East, North Africa, places like that, it's even more uncomfortable of a place to talk through conflict than it is here. But when people start to recognize that and they figure out how to do that, it's, it's almost like a light bulb goes, in, goes on in their mind where they recognize that I have the power to not only carry this for my rest of my life, but I can also go to this person who may have offended me and have a conversation with them in a very safe way and let them know in humility how that affected them 
affected me so that I can hopefully come to some resolution. And when they understand that, it's it's amazing to see. So the steps to the forgiveness process, from your perspective, give us a story. Uh, maybe tell us your story, maybe somebody else's story of how someone or how you went through the steps to forgiveness. For me, you know, I, in my book, I talk about uh, I talk about the stages of forgiveness that I walked through and. One of the most important things that I've wrestled through is how to reconcile this desire for justice with this belief that I'm supposed to forgive because I'm an attorney, so obviously justice is an important part of me. And so I had to wrestle through how could I have it both ways? How could I walk this out, even if I wasn't going to get things necessarily the way I wanted them to? And the first was really to identify what the the issue is. What's the offense? What's the hurt? What's the wrong? In my case, it was clear my mother was murdered by um, a terrorist. The second was the validation process. It's important to people, for people to be able to hear that what happened to them was wrong. And often I think we expect people to move to this place of forgiveness before they've even been able to fully feel the fullness of the pain. And so it's a recognition helping you know, them embrace that, yes, you're right to be angry. This was absolutely wrong. But then from there leading them to the the process of ultimately resolving it, and that includes grieving, is is being able to feel the fullness of the pain, what happened to you, um, embrace it deeply, and then from there begin to prepare to uh, let that go. And often an important part of that is this stage of confrontation. Now, that's where someone is safe, if they're available, ready, willing to have a conversation, is to to go to them in a way that's honoring and humble and say, you know, like me, to sit with Momar Gaddafi and just to let him know that I believe he killed my brother, whether he wanted to say it or not, and that I have chosen to to let that go. And, and hopefully to elicit some repentance in that, because that's the biggest sticker for most people is they're waiting for someone to say, I'm sorry. And you may hear it in this lifetime, and you may not. Um, and so the other remedy I have in that situation comes at the end that's assuming that they're well hold on one sec because i know everybody wants to know did Gaddafi say i'm sorry you know it's interesting because um he he took responsibility but he never said i did it and that's it's interesting about their culture is i found this out they accept responsibility to their actions not to their words it's like this honor and shame culture mentality is is they they take responsibility but they never say i did it and I didn't know this until after I started doing work in that culture. It's you look at the actions. And so in their culture, they look at the actions of the person. And if their actions are saying, I'm repenting, even if they're saying out of their mouth, I didn't do it, then that's a repentance. So from their cultural perspective, since I understood that, it was repentance, even though he was saying, I didn't do it. So that's why I felt very confident. Now, what actions were repentant, Betty? What were his repentant actions? He took responsibility publicly for the actions. And so it's interesting because I asked some people in my, in my class about this, and I said, how is that repentance? Because apparently in, their, in the Quran, you're allowed to um, pay someone damages for wrong in lieu of being punished. And so his, in his mindset, accepting responsibility and paying damages was a sign of repentance, whether I necessarily agree with that or not but it gave me the freedom to believe that it was repentance, even if it didn't look like that to the world. So he paid damages? He did. Okay, and that was his way of repenting? 
even though he said he didn't do it. Correct. Interesting. Now, how did you feel with his saying, I didn't do it, and then paying damages? That's one of the things that I guess I've gained an insight in that I wouldn't have had 20 years before, which is why not meeting with him until 2009 I think was real important because I wouldn't have understood what was happening. But because I've been working in the culture and understood more about how they do forgiveness and reconciliation and all those things, I, I was comfortable with what was happening. And I was looking beyond the words to his actions and his demeanor and knowing, you know, in that, that I wasn't necessarily going to get a, an admission of responsibility, but it was more about the statement that I was making is I choose to forgive no matter what, that this is my decision and not something you have control over. Hmm. So I understand what you just said intellectually, but can you hark back to that time? How did it feel to have somebody pay you damages when you'd lost your brother? I think, you know, at the time it had been many, many years, and at that point we were just all ready for it to be done. And so it wasn't even about the damages. It was about there just being closure. It took many years of there being, you know, sanctions against Libya and all those things. And so for me, I was already, when I met face-to-face with him, I had already come to a place of peace internally so that wasn't that meeting with him had less to do with my own closure as it did I think communicating a message to the world and I and I see that in hindsight that it was more about the message that was communicated of love triumphing over hate and the feedback I got from all over the world really confirmed that and so it wasn't in my heart it was almost in some ways like I was having somewhat of a it was like an out-of-body experience. Was I, I was experiencing it, but it wasn't like people were saying, were you scared? I'm like, no, I had this deep sense of peace. And it was a peace that, that made no sense in you know, worldly terms. I, I felt a, a sense of peace and a sense of joy. And that sounds strange, right? But it was because I'd reconciled in my heart you know, many years before so that I could sit face-to-face with him and not tremble in fear, knowing that he is a wicked man and had done horrific things, but still doing horrific things. I could still sit face to face with him and in an all good conscience say, I have forgiven. And had I not walked that out yet, I don't know that it would have had as much impact. And even himself, when he, he was interviewed on CNN before I even did an interview, he, he's the one that broke the story. And he's the one that said that he was actually touched by it. So I know that it had an impact on him, even though I know that, it didn't in any way necessarily change him. It had more to do with, I think, what was going on with me and then the story that went forth. Hmm. So for you, you could recognize this is a wicked guy. He has done and continued to do terrible things. His son followed in his footsteps and committed terrible crimes against his own people. Yet you could say, I'm not going to hold on to. Yeah. The and this the anger or whatever else was going on for you. Yeah, because it really relates to the the last stage in the forgiveness process for me, is which I talk about is called transferring the case. I had taken the case. It's like you're litigating it in the inner courtroom of your heart over and over again and can find no relief. And I had taken that and I just had sort of transferred it up to heaven's courtroom and just gave it to God and said, let you deal with it. 
I can't carry this anymore. And so I had done that already. And so I wasn't really carrying it. I mean, I had some grief in my heart and I had some things, but it wasn't the debilitating deep pain that I'd felt before because I was no longer carrying that offense. I would given it up to the higher power and said, you deal with it. I trust that you're the, the judge. And pretty much every world religion sees God as the judge. And that's why I think I could authentically sit with him. Even if he didn't repent the way we as Westerners think he should, I had made a decision, I'm not going to carry this anymore and let it go. Hmm. So for you, this is a spiritual process. At the end of the day, the letting go requires that you have some sense, or, or does it, that you have some sense of a higher power that's going to take the case. I think either that, I mean, I've had people, I've had a conversation with people, they say, well, what if you don't believe in God? Most people believe in some, whether it's karma, you know, this idea of, you know, you get what you gave, that kind of something coming back to you, you don't want to carry this because if you do, it'll come back to you. Most people, at least deep within them at some level, have a spiritual belief. So whatever that looks like for someone practically, whether it's the universe or, or God or whatever, I think it still works. It's making a decision that. I don't have to carry this. I have a choice that in this life I want to have peace. And in order to do that, I have to let this go. And I need to leave it and just trust that, you know, justice will eventually come. Or I'll be able to move forward without ever seeing justice. And I think making that that resolution within my heart was an important part is recognizing I may not see justice in the worldly sense in this lifetime. And that's okay. That's an interesting concept. You know, uh, I wrote a book called Power Choices a little while ago, Lisa, and the last chapter of the book is what I call innovation, and it's about restorative justice Mm -hmm. as a way of righting wrongs. Is this similar to restorative justice? Is this going along that same path? It's very deeply uh, rooted in restorative justice principles. I mean, I'm a mediator, and I've done restorative justice type things, I didn't necessarily think of it in those terms. I was just sort of walking it out, and it wasn't until later where people started to say to me, oh, this is totally restorative justice. And I thought, oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> but so it wasn't uh, a conscious thing necessarily when I was doing it. I was just trying to live out what I believed I needed to do, and then, and then I saw the power of it. And since then, I've become a mediator, and now I do conflict resolution. And I do restorative justice work a lot with criminals and, and victims, and it's powerful. It's an amazing thing to see the transformation that happens in mediation or a restorative justice what setting you that, that you've never seen. What have you what seen when you do that work? What, what, what was that? What have you seen in doing that work? Probably the biggest thing was the power of sitting face-to-face with someone who's wronged you and being able to hear the other person's side is when people actually sit face-to-face with someone and they hear how their behavior had affected them, it's it may take some time to, to get them to really understand it, but once they start to really understand it, the whole process of taking responsibility and saying you're sorry and moving towards something more restorative happens very quickly, but it doesn't happen easily because you have to work through the stuff. It's like peeling back layers of an onion, and if you've got a, a sort of a history sometimes with someone, it runs deep, you've got to dig deep, and you've got to go to the root issue and then work your way forward. So it's not necessarily quick, but it's more lasting in terms of the impact 
And when people recognize that, they see the power of it. That's why people become huge advocates of restorative justice because they've seen it in their own life and how it's affected them and the person who's wronged them. And that's where I think the change happens. Yeah. At the end of the day, my attraction to everything you're saying is profound. I really know because I work all day every day with families and couples, and as the holidays are approaching, one of the reasons we wanted to talk with you is that a lot of the injustices that are done are very personal. They're to people who are closest to us. It's not, you know, a world leader who is, you know, an evil, narcissistic psychopath. It's your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your husband, your wife, your partner. It's somebody close to you hurting you, and it's not necessarily a criminal who's harmed you. What would you say to family members who are carrying these old grudges? Uh, I told a little story at the top of the show, a true story about actually both these brothers, you're going to love this, were judges in a fist fight under Mother's Thanksgiving table in their 60s, duking it out because Mom passed the stuffing to one first. I mean, what? I know, I know, it sounds ridiculous. No, but, no. But this it's is what true. happens on holidays. So what do you say to people if it's someone close to them where they've got to do, as you say, the walking it out and getting to the restoration? Now, for those who don't know, by the way, what if you give us a very quick outline on what restorative justice means to you? It really has to do with not just uh, it's not it's not punitive in nature by definition. Sometimes there is a punishment that's part of the process of mediation. It, sometimes it has a punishment or a punitive element, but the the idea is to restore the relationship primarily, and so that's first and foremost. And then there could be some reconciliation steps or some things that the the wrongdoer needs to do, like pay restitution or something like that. But it's primarily about restoring the relationship beyond just mediating the the legal issue. And for those who aren't aware of it, the most dramatic and massive example we have of this on the world stage was when Nelson Mandela came to power and he and Bishop Desmond Tutu had truth and reconciliation hearings in South Africa. And this Mm -hmm. is credited with preventing a potential bloodbath when Mandela came to power, that this is an ancient approach in many traditions around the world, but certainly embedded in indigenous African cultures was this idea of restoration as opposed to punishment. Mm -hmm. So it's a powerful idea. Now let's go back to the families. Okay, we've got the families duking it out. What would you say to them about restoration? How can we use forgiveness? I think the the biggest thing with families is it's always it's almost like the three hundred pound gorilla sitting in the middle of the room. No one wants to, to talk about it, but they see it there. And people just think if they just ignore it, maybe it'll go away. And that's unfortunately why these things just continue to fester, why the, the issue with the stuffing ends up turning into like a, a bomb when it was really something small, is it's it's almost like there's it's like a submarine underneath the surface, just ready to come to the surface. And so it's recognizing there it's there. And you know, going to someone like you or a mediator, someone that does therapy and, and work through this stuff. I mean, no one wants to talk about it. They don't want to deal with it. But if you go in with the intention of listen, we're gonna we're gonna deal with this, we're gonna fix this, we're gonna resolve this 
history that you have that continues to cause problems because it's destroying our families, destroying our community. And when, when someone takes a leadership and says, listen, we're going we're to take this head on and restore this relationship and fix it, then I think that there's power in that process of someone being willing to take the first step and realizing that it's not going to be easy, but you can restore very deep issues if you're willing to talk through them. Wow. Okay, I'm imagining myself sitting down with my sisters on Thanksgiving and going head on into this. Okay, that's very, very encouraging. <laughs> Don't do it at the Thanksgiving dinner. I would say do it right. before Thanksgiving. <laughs> And that's one of the secrets, by the way, everyone. I always tell people, don't do this stuff on the holiday. Don't. No, just not. don't go there with the intention to take the stuffing bomb and blow it up in everybody's face. Keep your stuffing bomb in the trunk of your car. And yeah. what I, I have my own little process for families that have veteran breakdown, and that is after the holiday, you send an open letter to everyone that is, of course, loving, and you're taking responsibility for your mm-hmm. part, asking, asking if they will enter the process with you. And it's always good to have a guide so that there's a neutral party there so they can't just fire on you. The neutral party is there to do exactly what I know you do, Lisa, and what I do when I'm teaching classes and, and working with couples, which is act as a person, I call it, holding the highest truth. Mm-hmm. And that highest truth is that within each of us, there is greater possibility than we ever dreamed that we can step into greatness. That's why we say here on Good Love Radio that good love means you're becoming your greatest self. So, Lisa, what would you recommend, anything else that you would recommend for those who are in families that need healing or communities? Because God knows right now we have communities within the United States that have been deeply wounded and wronged. We've got police shootings in the African-American community. We've got people divorcing and their children are shattered and, and spouses and partners are shattered. We've got all kinds of stuff. What do we need to do right now as individuals and as community members to transform this? I think that the first thing is it starts with, with you personally, with yourself. It's it's making a decision that that you choose to live with an attitude of forgiveness in your own life and then begin to then try to influence other people in your family and in your community. But Try not to get sucked into the the finger pointing part of it, where it's the blame game, because that gets you nowhere. So try to find a way to to deal with your own stuff first, then with your own family, and then move into your own community, and from there. But you have to live it yourself to be able to speak into it in other people's lives. And I learned that in my own life. Had I not walked this out in my own life, I'd never have the authority or influence to speak into the lives of other people. You've got to live it first, and it's from there that I think if people start to develop that culture of forgiveness in their family, their community, hopefully it will begin to take hold on a larger scale. So it's lead by example as to come in the door preaching. Yeah? Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more because when one person truly gets this in their heart, they're not going to be on the offensive. Or my favorite is I was working with a family once where uh, it was kind of interesting. There were two moms, and one of the moms said to the other, look, uh, we just got to start changing things in this family and start forgiving. So you 
major change. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't have to tell you that. That was kind of yep. a stuffing a stuffing bomb. <laughs> <laughs> so please, 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 I beg you, do your own work. Every one of us has work to do. And one thing you can do is place your hand on your heart and ask, what in me needs forgiveness? Because if we start with ourselves, we are 50% of the way down the path because looking within is always, from where I sit, the place to gain the most altitude, the greatest power. And Lisa Gibson, you are remarkable. You are inspiring. You are courageous. And I am so honored that you have taken the time to stop by Good Love Radio with us. I am right there with you, my dear, that I firmly believe we can transform human consciousness and transform our world if we can learn to things out with one another. So thank you so very, very much, and many blessings to you on your journey. And stop by again. I'd love to hear more about your work. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. It's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. All right, good love community. Send out a wave of love and light to Lisa Gibson, and we're going to give you one more time her website. You can absolutely get in touch with her at www.conflictcoach.biz. Her books are available, I'm sure, everywhere. But let me tell you again, she's got a book that just came out called, is this new or is this a book that's older? That's called Life and Death, A Journey from Terrorism to Triumph. And you've got the book Releasing the Chains, Timeless Mm -hmm. Wisdom on How to Forgive Anyone for Anything. Yeah, the the Releasing the Chains has been out for a couple years, but it's just been updated. So there's a lot of new information in there. Great. All right. Updated Releasing the Chains, everyone. Okay, good luck, community. Hit us back on Facebook, tweet us, uh, follow us, stay with us. We've got so much more for you, and stay tuned. I was in New York yesterday to tape a show with Dr. Oz. We'll let you know as soon as we know when that show will be airing. Speaking of forgiveness, it's one of the themes in that show of the young woman we're working with who's got an eating disorder and being able to work on that forgiveness piece for herself before this eating disorder destroys your health. All right, we've got so much more. I love you. I'm sending you blessings. Be well, everyone. Bye. 